Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. It's, it's very uh, heartening to have people to listen to my, my thoughts about this, this particular topic. So, because it's been um, something in my mind with practice for a really long time. So I want to start by saying my intention for the talk is to encourage everyone's practice. Um, I always am really encouraged by the part of the grass roof hermitage, the song of the grass roof hermitage. At the very end, he's saying, and don't give up. I always am very encouraged by that. So the topic of the talk is about doubt. Um, and I'm a little um, worried about that because it seems like encouragement and doubt are sort of antithetical, sort of opposite of each other. But it's a big part of my practice is doubt. Um, I thought about this talk when I listened to Flint's talk a couple of weeks ago. And in one short little part of this talk, um, what I got out of it was that he was talking about um, an interview with a teacher of his, with Mel Weitzman. And he had gone to Mel Weitzman and he had said, um, I, I don't feel confidence. And to me, that sort of read, I have doubt. And Mel asked him, do you doubt yourself or do you doubt the practice? And he seemed to say automatically without much thinking, oh, myself. And my answer to that question was automatically, well, both. <laughs> um, so, Sometimes I doubt the genuineness, the realness for myself of some of the things I read or hear that are considered teaching. Um, and most of the time, I doubt my ability to realize these things, to embody the teaching. Um, so, my experience of non-duality, I feel like is very limited. I know I've talked to various teachers here and other places about what, you know, what is this? I don't feel like I can rest in this teaching because I don't feel like I really had an experience of it. And um, it's such an important aspect of the Dharma of our teaching is this non-duality. I mean, we say in the Heart Sutra, no old age and death, no extinction of old age and death. 
So this is a paradox. Our teaching, our tradition is full of paradox. Um, it could be said that the practice of Zen is the process of accepting paradox, of savoring it, of embracing it. So I got interested in the word paradox and the etymology. I always love it when people are giving talks and they talk about the etymology of words. So paradox comes from the Greek at one point, para, which is contrary to, and then doken, to appear or to seem or to think. So paradox, contrary to what it seems like, what I think it's like, what it appears to be like. So our teaching is full of this paradox, but at the same time, it's full of the teaching of questioning. What is this? What is this? Um, we're given a paradox, but we're also encouraged to ask to question this. Um, and I'm gonna read quite a bit from a book that I'm reading now called The Faith to Doubt by Stephen Batchelor. And I wanted to start out with um, a little bit about his introduction to this book. He wrote when he left a Korean Zen monastery and he wrote this book after he left and he's talking about his experience there. And he says, apart from the brief daily cleaning, this is all that happens in the hall. The rest of the time I'm expected to ask with all my strength, what is it? Or what is this? Or simply what? Perhaps why is it? Why is this? I am told that the questioning, the doubt, matters, not the words. So this technique that he describes in this book that he was instructed in of just staying with that question, very similar to my understanding of what happens with koans. You are expected to hold it with you all the time all the time be, have this in your mind. Um, he talks about this in Korean Zen as a kung on practice, this what is it? What is it? Um, so it's an age old teaching. I mean, it goes way back in the Zen lineage, this, asking what is it? It's a universal koan. So here's another bit from the book. When Ganaba Bhadra was imparting wisdom to others, before he had even begun to preach the Dharma, he would assess, pointing at a leaf and asking, what is that? In the same text, the first patriarch, Bodhidharma, is likewise recorded to have employed this method in his teaching. 
He pointed at things and inquired of their meaning, simply pointing at a thing and calling, what is that? He asked about a number of things, switching their names about and asking about them again differently. Ching Chu also finds an instance of such direct questioning in the teachings of the fifth patriarch of Zen school, Hung Jin. The great master said, there is a single little house filled with crap and weeds and dirt. What is it? He also said, if you sweep out all the crap and weeds and dirt and clean it up so there is not a single thing left inside, then what is it? <laughs> so these, these koans, unanswerable questions that were, that we use as a technique. Um, I wanted to read a koan from The Gateless Barrier that seems to encourage that spirit as well. So this is from The Gateless Gate or The Gateless Barrier. And it's case number 12, Ju Yen calls master. The priest Ju Yen called master to himself every day and answered himself, yes. <laughs> then he would say, beware, and reply, yes. Don't be deceived by others. No, no. <laughs> so I could go on and read pages of commentary about that, but I'm not going to put you through that. But it seems to me that spirit of not taking others' words for it. I know we've talked about that before in the sutra that the Buddha gave um, to the Kamalas, I believe. I can't believe, yeah. That where he's talking about, where they're asking him, there are all these teachers. Um, who should we believe? How do we know what's real and what's not? And he tells them, don't believe because you read it. Don't believe because you hear it. Don't believe because it's your teacher saying it. Don't believe because the great and good believe it. But you must try it out for yourself. You need to experience this for yourself. Um, and this con seems to, to speak to that to me, that don't be deceived. Don't follow in others' footsteps. Don't imitate. Use what's come before you. Listen to what's come before you. But know that you'll need to find your own way. It's also interesting that he calls to himself and he answers himself. So it's almost like he's the one that knows the answer. He's the one that with the instruction, what to do, but he, and he's also the one that's getting instructed. He's also the one that needs to do the activity that's being instructed to him to do. So he's not, he is two people, 
but he's not two people. He's the same person. He is the question and the strong, continual process of asking that question. So in this book, The Faith to Doubt, Stephen Batchelor talks about different kinds of questioning, different kinds of doubt. He talks about calculation, which is our everyday kind of wondering and figuring things out. And he talks about a meditative attitude, which is a different, which is set in contrast to that. There are two distinct kinds of questioning. The most common type is that which solves the problems which occur in daily life. If something fails to work in the way we expect it to, we ask ourselves why and begin to search for the causes and reasons for the failure. If we come across something we have never encountered before, we become baffled and ask ourselves what's going on. Such questioning is one of curiosity. We're usually confident that an answer lies within our reach. It's just a matter of figuring it out. We can apply whatever skills we have learned as well as the powers of our own reason and memory and rely upon the ever-growing quantity of knowledge that's been collected and stored by others. Such questioning leads along a calculated path. We determine what possibilities lie ahead of us. We infer what is of greater possibility. We eliminate certain choices through trial and error or by simple deduction. With each completed step, we calculate our next move until finally the problem is solved and our curiosity is replaced with the satisfaction of no. <laughs> and I would say the rest, the relaxation of knowing. That's something that I feel in myself so much with my questioning. If only I knew I could let this go. I could relax and be sure about this. So besides the satisfaction, which there certainly is that, would be the comfort, the security of knowing. So he sets this in contrast to a meditative attitude. I'll read a little about it his description of that. The core of a meditative attitude is questioning itself. In contrast to a calculating inquiry in which the inquirer is separate from the problem, only a conceptual distinction can be made between the meditator and the mystery. For meditative questioning partakes in the nature of the mystery itself. It is a kind of fundamental astonishment or perplexity reflecting that which simultaneously shows itself and withdraws. The practice of meditation is a process of attrition. The mind has a seemingly infinite capacity for chatter and there is no instant or easy cure for this proliferation of thoughts and emotions. I know Peg used to reference this, that there was a word in, I don't know if it was Pali or Sanskrit, but propancha, 
this, this continual um, upswelling of questions and chatter. Only the patient continuity of meditation, what the Chinese master Su Yun called a long enduring mind can finally wear it down. This process is echoed in Lao Tzu's words, which is of all things most yielding can overwhelm that is of all things most hard. Water is that which is most yielding, rock that which is most hard. The patient unhurried yet continuous flow of water can wear down even the most resistant and stubborn rock. So I have another um, instruction in the activity and the attitude of doubt. Um, this comes from Zen master Takasui. You must doubt deeply again and again, asking yourself what the subject of hearing could be. Pay no attention to the various illusory thoughts and ideas that may occur to you. Only doubt more and more deeply, gathering together in yourself all the strength that is in you without aiming at anything or expecting anything in advance, without intending to be enlightened and without even intending not to intend to be enlightened. Become like a child in your own breast. So back to the encouraging part. Um, and again, I was a little trepidatious about bringing this as a, an encouraged, encouragement to practice because they do seem at odds with each other, these attitudes of doubt and attitudes of encouragement. Um, I wanted to read one more thing that really begins to uh, combine those two things. The Zen tradition often speaks of three factors that need to be cultivated along the path. Great faith, great doubt, and great courage. Thus, faith and doubt are brought together. Clearly, doubt in this context does not refer to the kind of wavering indecision in which we get stuck, preventing any positive move. It means to keep alive the perplexity at the heart of our life, to acknowledge that fundamentally, we do not know what is going on, and to question <laughs> whatever arises within us. So that, that encouragement, gentle and slow like water. And again, my last bit of encouragement I wanted to give was 
to go back to the Song of the Grass Roof Hermitage by Sekito Kisen. It's in the chant book, and we chant it once a week in the morning. So some of the last lines in that poem are, the vast inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from. And that one line to me is, holds that paradox, but it also is very reassuring to me. You can't do it. You can't not do it. It's okay. <laughs> Meet the ancestral teachers. Be familiar with their instructions. Bind grasses to build a hut and don't give up. So do all the Zen stuff, read all the books and listen to all the podcasts and ask all the questions and hear the answers. But live your life. Find grasses to build a hut. Do the daily things, but don't give up. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. So thank you very much for your attention. And I think we have plenty of time for questions. I don't have an activity um, decided on, so uh, whatever is up for people, whatever the talk has, has brought up, or, yeah, Lori. <clears throat> so I want to say how much I appreciate that. I think it's very timely. Um, and just one of the last things that you said, and I'm not going to quote it exactly right, but um, about um, the advice of, well, certainly not giving up, but right before that, it was about um, holding on to the, holding on to the, no, it wasn't holding on. It was walking, walking, just walking and doing it, mm -hmm. walking and doing it. So you keep on and, and not giving up. And I think that sometimes one can get to a point where there's so much frustration or, or whatever, and it's like, ah. <laughs> and so it, it's so, it's very encouraging me, for me, particularly to hear that. It just said, just be with it, just mm -hmm. be with it. Mm -hmm. And that's the crucial point. It's, it, is, it is just being with it and not putting it aside or, or giving up. It's saying, okay, this is what I'm holding right now. Yeah. So it's very simple, but it's so profound, you know, yeah. to do that. So anyway, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, I mean, so much in the reading that I did talks about, it's not about answering the question. And I know that comes from so many wisdom teachings that you have to love the question. Um, and that's an easy thing to say. <laughs> but the, the question that attitude is the point is is the way forward yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, this goes with what you just were talking about. There's the koan, not knowing is most intimate. And I'm curious if you see that just as the same as doubt. But somehow it seems a little more positive to be in the state of not knowing. Yeah, I think that's what doubt gets you to. That in my experience is that that's sort of the fruit or the wine after the bitter grapes of doubt you get. You come to this, I don't know. And he talks about that, Stephen Batchelor talks about that in the book, where it's almost like being in a room where there's a really loud machine and suddenly the machine breaks down and stops and can't go anymore, can't function anymore. And it's so quiet. And he talks about that as our doubt, our questioning, our questioning, our questioning and getting or being at some place where you let go and relax. Do you think that, um, it just occurred to me that, is that the point of acceptance just of the situation? Mm. You know, saying, well, this is what it is, instead of fighting, fighting against it. Right. Just a question. Another question. that's true and trying to figure it out and fix it. Well, I'm just going to amplify what all has been said. Um, <clears throat> knowing feels so good, it's mm -hmm. satisfying, and it is our ultimate delusion. <laughs> and and so we we suffer with not knowing and doubt and and paradoxes, but that is life as it is, and that is when we have broken through from delusion. And it doesn't feel that way. It's because, it's groundless. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> groundless. That that's another line from I think it's from the Shenzhen Ming that always the first time I heard it, I was like, ah. <laughs> and then simultaneously like, ah, it's um, all at once you are free with nothing left to hold on to. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> all at once. Becky. Yeah, Becky. Oh, I'm on now. Um, thank you for this. Um, I think that the paradoxes that I've bumped into in the teaching have often been some of my sort of big things. M most of the ones for me land in the form of the forms um, and and like like the, the first time I came to Abamata in person I um, Peg gave me a, a chant card and I looked at it and sort of put it in my bag and and said to Darcy on our way home that you're never going to catch me saying chants and and so it was interesting for me across the time when I became more involved with Apamata uh, to find that as, as Flint offered things which, which were a different word framing of what the, real, what the meaning for us is, 
and I got it, you know, it's like, and then I could say those ones. So at a, at a later time in inquiry, I asked, I, I said, I said something to Flint about that. I find that I can only say out loud or say even in myself, the things that I believe that I have come to believe or, or believe. And he said, no, you need to say them all. And I'm going like, I don't think so. And I've, I've tried it out and there's still a number of them that, that I don't find at all that I can say. Uh, and so I just let them be, let them flow through me rather than to try to say them, which just keeps my mind more, more mixed about it. And some of those have come to me in a way that I can say them. But the biggest thing that helped me say a lot of the chants, even before I felt, oh, I believe that, uh, is, is, is because of Sangha, because, because it's my family, because it's the people that I am here for also, is part of why I am present here. And, and because it's important to them, I can do that whether or not it's completely in me. And some of those have come to be in me because of doing it with Sangha. And, and similarly, like one of the things that you said about that, you know, when you have doubt or when something doesn't feel right to you, try a variety of ways of, of doing or, or being with it. Uh, experiment for yourself, not doing it, doing it doing it this way or that. And that's one of the ways that I've taken on in relationship to certain of them that has been really useful, uh, really lets me hold them as a paradox. Because I mean, we, we live in a dualistic culture, a culture who has cultivated dualism. And there are less dualistic cultures but this is the one that we're in. And, and so, and also I, I don't remember for sure, but, but the etymology I experienced when I looked it up a long time ago and then just had it in my head, so I don't know exactly, is that para means like something beyond, like a paramedic, like a, you know, like a parachute. It's something that's beyond whatever its, its immediate frame is. And I'm not real sure about docs, but it's probably like doxology. And therefore, maybe about, about the teaching. I'm, or, or, you know, the things documented. Even. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. No. <laughs> um, but but it it seems to me that any of the times I've tried to be with things that feel paradoxic, I put my hands out and have them be in the same hands. And if I can hold them equally, like instead of here or here or somewhere else. Um, that I feel all of the parts of them that are 
in my mind different and therefore two that that I can hold them at the same time is is an amazing thing and and it doesn't resolve the paradox but it makes it not stirring me in a disturbing way so that's that's what I wanted to share and I really thank you for this because I think that that it is something that definitely hits all of us in terms of of can I believe that if it says something that doesn't make sense to me is different than can I believe that there's something beyond my my perception beyond my way of thinking so I thank you so much thank you good morning can you hear me yes okay well, I, first I want to express my gratitude. Um, I felt myself, my throat pull in and tighten up and feel weepy because this is the fundamental thing that I so often face is that the feelings of doubt, should I do this or do that? And I'm facing a, a situation that um, involves extended family in early October. And, and it makes me realize that I can cultivate this I can accept the fact that I have these doubts, but try to approach it with that, with the encouragement and ideas for encouragement that you have um, opened, you know, opened me to today. So um, I'm deeply grateful. I have a deep bow for, for your presentation of this. It's opening up a new view for me. Thanks. Write down these three little phrases that doubt is natural, doubt is inevitable, and doubt is essential. <laughs> so thank you all. I guess we'll go ahead and finish up with our service. I'd like to say one more thing. Oh, okay. This is somewhat for Susan, but I... <laughs> I was reading a, a book review about mathematics this morning, and I was just thinking as we were talking that it was saying, where did numbers come from? And there is some, I guess, discrepancy about whether it came from man or whether it came from nature, like basic formulas of the universe. Uh, and I thought that was really beautiful. So, and just holding that doubt, where did numbers come from, was kind of a neat neat exercise for me. And, and to doubt numbers, that, yeah. Yeah. What? To doubt numbers like yeah. that. How unusual yeah. because they feel pretty certain. Yeah. Like one is one, two is two. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's another dimension. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>